Well, good morning. Let's go ahead and pray. Father, we do thank you so much for who you are. We recognize that you're the king. You are the high king. And we just ask that you would be our wisdom today. God, I pray that you would um, lay bare our hearts, examine us with, with your word by your Holy Spirit, and we recognize you as our chief authority. God, would you just come today and, and help us as we look at your word, as we receive the diagnosis of our hearts that you want to give us. I just pray that you would, you would help us. You would just give us wonderful grace. You're a generous God. You're a kind God. You are a gentle God. So I pray that where we need rebuke, God, that you would rebuke us with your gentleness. And I just pray that you would, you would help us and you would give us the divine wisdom. In Jesus' name, amen. So we've been in the book of James. Good old James. Good old Jimmy. He always, uh, he always has something for you. Kind of punches you right between the eyes. And so we're going to receive some of that today. James chapter 3, verses 13 to 18. Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder in every vile practice. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. This is God's Word. Amen. So who is a wise person in your life? Think of the people that you know. Maybe picture him or her. Who is it? Why? Why is that the person? Why are they wise? What attributes do they have? What are they like? And James starts us out here with that question. As he's addressing this community, who is wise and understanding among you? And it's probably a rhetorical question. It's not just, okay, give me the answer of all the people that are, that are wise. But I think it's a helpful picture to think in your mind, who is who do you think of as wise? Why are they wise? And does it match this list that James gives? The first verse shows us that 
the one thing about wisdom is that wisdom cannot be hidden. That wisdom will be shown. Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. It's visible. You can see it. And so again and again, James calls us to examine our actual lives. Not just our beliefs, not just our thoughts, but our lives. He's not interested in a person thinking that he's wise or believing that she's wise. He's interested in the kind of wisdom that we are actually producing in our life. As Jesus, again James, the half-brother of Jesus, as Jesus said in Luke 7.35, wisdom is vindicated by all her children. Wisdom is vindicated. Wisdom is justified. Wisdom is shown by the fruit of it, by the kids. So in other words, wisdom is like pregnancy. You won't know what you have till you have it. And there it is. And that's the kind of wisdom that it is, whatever it might be. So James wants us to know that there are two kinds of wisdom operating in this world. Two kinds. There is a wisdom from above and a wisdom from below, as it were. And so does the wisdom in your life have the aroma of heaven or of earth? Is it demonic or is it divine? And what I want to do to kind of set this up is for, for us to remind ourselves of, of the context. First, the literary context. What we have here is James is writing. We're in you know, the middle of this again. There's no chapters and verses when he's originally writing this down. He's not putting those in his scroll or whatever it might be. Um, but we need to see it in the whole letter. And what you have here is you have basically a, a wisdom sandwich between chapter 3, verse 1, and chapter 4, verse 12. You have a few things going on. You have paragraphs on the tongue and the poison that the tongue can spew, the hellfire that the tongue can bring. And then on the other side of it, you have conflicts that it goes into in chapter Four, about why conflicts are among you. And in between those two sections, you have these two kinds of wisdom. And so what he's showing us is that wise people prove their wisdom in their speech, the first chunk of verses in chapter 3, and in their relationships, especially in their conflicts and quarrels in James 4. Verses 1 through 12. And wisdom right in the middle. We also see that James brings these things up a lot. There's themes here that repeat in his letter. In chapter 1, verse 17, that phrase, from above, is used in speaking of the Father. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights. We have the idea of wisdom in chapter 1. In chapter 1, verse 5, where if you want wisdom, what do you do? 
You ask God. God will give generously wisdom. We have works. So in this verse we just saw, by his good conduct, let him show his works. Well, we know James loves to talk about works. Chapter 2, a bunch of it. Faith without works is dead. So we see that he is developing these different themes and he's nailing this down right in our hearts and in our lives to get us to question ourselves, to examine ourselves. So that's kind of the context of the book. There's a cultural context that I think we can derive. We always got to be careful when doing this because we can't paint exactly what was going on, but we can see from the way that James is writing that there are issues like fake faith in this community with faith and works. He's trying to drive home the point. Stuff has to be shown in your life. You have the relationship of hearing and doing. So you have hypocrisy. The issue of hypocrisy that's present in this community. Of not doing the word. Speaking like everything is good and you got it all down. And living the opposite way. We also can kind of get a sense of some social issues in the community, which we haven't got to as much yet. But later on in James, you have the issues of rich and poor. Some of it we got with the issue of favoritism in the community. Hey, somebody walks in, they got a nice robe on, everything's good, you're going to give them a higher place. So there's the separation of classes probably in the community. Later on, things like woe to the rich. And the issue of pride that can develop with rich people and oppression that can kick in in wealthy communities and wealthy societies. Prejudices, rivalries that can develop between groups of people. We also have suffering in this community. When you have things like poverty, things like oppression, there can be suffering. That is real. So James tells them later on to be patient in suffering. He talks about trials at the beginning. They're going through stuff. Be patient. And this would have been very countercultural in their society. Because back then you have zealots. Zealots. Bunch of zeal. Revolution, insurrection, take the sword, peasants, war, things like that. You look at this time in history. Again, you have Roman Empire there. You have Jewish revolts happening. You have certain people that are zealots. We see that in the people that Jesus brought together. You have a zealot and you have a tax collector. Normally not going to work together. And yet, that's what Jesus does. So you have this issue of why don't we rise up and take revolution and take the sword and do things in a violent way. Forget the suffering. Let's go get them. So he's probably confronting some of that. And the second part of verse 13 paints, I think, another issue of culture. By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. What a beautiful phrase. The meekness of wisdom. 
Meekness is countercultural. It was countercultural then. One of the uh, dictionaries, or actually two different dictionaries, kind of made this clear. One writer says, The high place accorded to meekness in the list of human virtues is due to the example and teaching of Jesus Christ. Pagan writers paid greater respect to the self-confident man. Think about the old stories, the hero rising up. Then Jesus comes along, meek, crucified. Another dictionary, the key to understanding the virtue of meekness is that it's not a quality of weakness, but rather of strength. Meekness is not cowardice, timidity, or lack of confidence. In classical Greek, the word for which we derive meekness was used to describe tame animals, soothing medicine in a gentle breeze. The word also implies self-control. Aristotle describes it as the mean between excessive anger and excessive passivity, so that meekness can be regarded as strength under control. The background for understanding the biblical virtues of meekness and gentleness is the disparagement of these virtues in the classical world and the humanistic philosophies that have stemmed from classicism. Most of the world's literature has exalted the conquering hero who refuses to submit and who exerts his or her interests against anyone who might challenge those interests. Most cultures have reserved their rewards for people who compete successfully through strength of will, superior power, In such a context, Jesus' portrait of the ideal disciple is someone who is meek. goes on to say, a flat contradiction of conventional wisdom. So this would have been a very countercultural virtue. I was thinking, what a a power that is. You want to be unique in this culture, in our culture? You want to stand out, be humble? And be meek. Qualities that don't typically stand out. You want to be different. Assert a unique identity. There's one for you. That'll change things. Meekness and humility. We have another link um, in, in the text here between meekness. James earlier in James 1 verse, let's see, I think it's 14... No, excuse me, James 1.21. Put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. So wisdom, true wisdom, welcomes the word. There's a meekness about it. There's a sense of, I bow to this other authority. That this is an authority over us. And that we want to have a heart that is meek to receive what it says, even if it goes against our own personal values or the values of our culture. Meekness is an inward reality. How meekness is the heart issue and what comes out of it is gentleness. If you're a meek person, you're going to be a gentle person. And so gentleness is meekness gone public. The Net Bible put it this way, this last part of this verse. Show his works done in the gentleness that wisdom brings. So it drives against cultural issues. Biblical context. We see this in a few different ways that I think are key 
If you look at the whole Bible, we want to take sections like this and say, where do we see this in the Bible? Are there other clues that can help us understand this, that can say something to us? One area is Moses. Moses was known as the meekest man who ever lived. Humble man. In Numbers chapter 12, we see a picture of this. And we see these two different kinds of wisdom that are operating in this event. In Numbers 12. Miriam and Aaron spoke against Moses because of the Cushite woman whom he had married. For he had married a Cushite woman. And they said, Has the Lord indeed spoken only through Moses? Has he not spoken through us also? And the Lord heard it. Now the man Moses was very meek, more than all people who were on the face of the earth. And suddenly the Lord said to Moses and to Aaron and Miriam, Come out, you three, to the tent of meeting. And the three then came out. And the Lord came down in a pillar of cloud and stood at the entrance of the tent and called Aaron and Miriam, and they both came forward. And he said, Hear my words. If there's a prophet among you, I, the Lord, make myself known to him in a vision. I speak within a dream. Not so with my servant Moses. He is faithful in all my house. With him I speak mouth to mouth clearly and not in riddles. And he beholds the form of the Lord. Why then were you not afraid to speak against my servant Moses? And the anger of the Lord was kindled against them and he departed. When the cloud removed from over the tent, behold, Miriam was leprous like snow. And Aaron turned toward Miriam, and behold, she was leprous. And Aaron said to Moses, O oh, my Lord, do not punish us, because we have done foolishly and have sinned. Let her not be as one dead whose flesh is half eaten away when he comes out of his mother's womb. And Moses cried to the Lord, O oh God, please heal her, please. So there's two different forms of wisdom that are operating here. You have Aaron and Miriam who are functioning with rivalry. You don't have the word, maybe we do too. They're denying spiritual authority. There's probably racist overtones here. It's a Cushite woman. Probably dark-skinned from this area would have been uh, depending on the commentary, talks about Ethiopia, Sudan. He's married to this woman. And what does God do? Judgment, we're going to make you white. White as snow. So you have racism present. You have the rejection of authority, rivalry. That is a demonic, earthly wisdom. Then you have Moses who's meek. Even look at Moses' attitude here. Even, even, even the way it's written, oh God, comma, please heal her, dot, dot, the double dash hyphen, emphasis, please. This desire of Moses showing his meekness. They've confronted him. They're not putting up with his authority. God judges and he's still crying out for mercy. So we have that picture in the Bible. We have the church in Corinth where Paul basically spends three chapters, chapter 1, chapter 2, chapter 3, setting up this earth wisdom and this divine supernatural wisdom. And what happens in the Corinthian community? Factions developing. I'm of Paul. I'm of Cephas. I'm of Jesus. I'm the real spiritual one. I'm of the Christ. I got it down. All these factions breaking up, operating in evil wisdom. Foolish wisdom. 
And God says he comes to break that up. And he gives a crucified Messiah. Foolishness to the Greeks. And also the Jewish people. The cross, sacrifice, crucifixion, human weakness. Paul's saying he comes in weakness. Everybody else is oratory and flashy language. And he comes in weakness. But he comes with spiritual power to bust up these false values that are in the community. So the wisdom is upside down to what the world values. So those, I think, are some literary context, some cultural context, some biblical context. I'm thinking about our context, us, and maybe our culture. I can think of two different ways that this happens. One of them, the self. The center of the universe is you and the self inside of you. And developing that self and actualizing that self and getting your fulfillment and what you want according to your authority. And that value is everywhere. One Danish professor of psychology, who I don't think is a Christian, wrote this. The religion of the self has taken over many of the functions of Christianity. The role of the priest is now played by a psychotherapist or coach. Religious denominations have given way to therapy, coaching, and other techniques for personal development. Grace and salvation have been replaced by self-realization, skills enhancement, and lifelong learning. And finally, perhaps most importantly, where God used to be at the center of the universe, now it is the self. Never before in history have we talked so much about the self and its characteristics, self-esteem, self-confidence, self-development, etc. Never before have we had so many ways to measure, evaluate, and develop the self, even though we basically have no idea what it is. Unlike Christianity, the religion of the self does not have an external authority, God, to set the frameworks for life and human development. Instead, we have an inner authority, the self, that we now believe to be the guiding light of our lives. So that's one of our values that infect us and shape us. Another one, individualism, which morphs into tribalism. So what also happens in our culture is we value individual expression. We value the freedom of the individual. In many ways, all these good things. And what can happen is it can create hyper-individualism and then you break up into all these different groups and form tribes that just fight each other. One um, New York Times columnist wrote this in a recent book. Individualism taken too far leads to tribalism. Tribalism seems like a way to restore the bonds of community. It certainly does bind people together, but it's actually the dark twin of community. Community is connection based on mutual affection. Tribalism, in the sense I'm using it here, is connection based on mutual hatred. Community is based on common humanity. Tribalism on common foe. Tribalism is always erecting boundaries and creating friend-enemy distinctions. The tribal mentality is a warrior mentality based on scarcity. Life is a battle for scarce resources and is always us versus them, zero sum. The ends justify the means. Politics is war. Ideas are combat. It's kill or be killed. Mistrust is the tribalist worldview. Tribalism is community for lonely narcissists. 
Things like Facebook and social networking and algorithms can shape our views and our beliefs and then just reinforce them the whole time we spend time in them. Just continually reinforcing, setting us against each other. And that's a real danger. It's not about that maybe one way is right or the other way is wrong, but at times it's just a posture of this constant reinforcement of I'm right, the other is always wrong, and we break up into tribes, whether it's politically, whether it's in Christian denominations. There's all kinds of ways that tribalism can form. We think it's community and we think it's real, but it's a lie. It's a deceit. It's a demonic wisdom. So back to James. Verse 14. So here is where in these following verses, James is going to set the wisdom from above, demonic, earthly, unspiritual wisdom against the divine wisdom. Sorry, the wisdom from below against the divine wisdom. And I think there are some C's here if you want to break it up this way. We have the cause of demonic wisdom, the culture of demonic wisdom, the consequences of demonic wisdom. And we have the same thing with divine wisdom. So the cause is verse 15. I'm going to jump a verse for a minute. This is not the wisdom that comes from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. So earthly, earthly wisdom, that just simply means it's not of heaven. It's human activity. It's all the different human activities that we have. It's not God activity. Unspiritual. So it's natural as opposed to supernatural. It's everything we do in the natural realm without God. There's even, you might have sensual. There's things like animal-like, kind of appealing to the base instincts. Demonic. Behaving like a fallen spiritual being. I really kind of latched onto this one because it's, it's so striking that he would say that. That, this, that the kind of wisdom that is false that he's talking about, source is with the devil and demons. Well, Satan and the Satan, we often just think of like the, the main chief fallen spiritual being or something. But Satan actually in the Bible just means adversary. So constant adversarial activity against authority, against other things, a constant conflict-minded person can be rooted in demonic activity. Because Satan actually means adversary. He's the adversary against God. He's the adversary against man. He sets himself against. We also see other ways in which these characteristics that he paints of bitter jealousy and selfish ambition, which we'll get into, but how Satan is rooted in envy and ambition. Isaiah 14, which some people, not everybody, but some believe is speaking of the devil. Isaiah 14:12, how you are fallen from heaven. O day star, son of dawn, how you were cut to the ground, you who laid the nations low. You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven. 
Above the stars of God, I will set my throne on high. I will sit on the mount of assembly in the far reaches of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the Most High. But you were brought down to Sheol, the far reaches of the pit. Those who see you will stare at you and ponder over you. Is this the man who made the earth tremble and shook kingdoms? Who made the world like a desert and overthrew its cities? Who did not let his prisoners go home? It goes on. So this idea of envying God and the God-likeness, God's attributes, and wanting to rise up and take over. We see things like that in Matthew when, when he comes to tempt Jesus. Look at all these kingdoms, all these rulers. Hey, I can give you this. Isn't this beautiful? Isn't this great? Envy. We also see roots of bitterness. Oftentimes, like here and later, you have, you know, resist the devil. Talking about conflict and things like that. Resist the devil. That seems kind of extreme. Um, bitterness. You know, Ephesians four twenty-six to 27. The ways in which that can play out and be associated with giving the devil a foothold. Pretty serious. Pretty serious. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. So the link between constant resentment and the devil. So that's the cause. That's the cause. That's the source. That's where this kind of wisdom comes from. So the culture of this kind of wisdom. We see, all, we see those two things mainly. Verse 14, if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. And then later in verse 16, for where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder in every vile practice. The words... Bitter jealousy are two separate words in Greek. And the emphasis is on, for bitter is this idea of sharpness like an arrow. It's the word picture, sharp. Jealousy, this picture is dark red. Sharp, dark red activity. And actually, the word for jealousy is just zeal. Just zeal. If you go back in the Old Testament, you have guys like Phineas. You grab a sword and... You know, plunge through and take up things in violence and plunge through the Midianite and then the person of God who was in the tent, probably in sexual activity, kills them and his zeal for God is praised. But there's a different kind of zeal um, that operates with Jesus. And this bitter, excuse me, this, um, this embitter jealousy is this zeal that's rooted in bitterness and rooted in resentment, sharpened by envy. So just pause for a second and ask yourself, what are you resenting right now? In what places in your life does resentment live? I was writing this down. So maybe make a list. Hmm. What are things that I resent? 
name them out loud and ask God to help you. It's a serious thing. Selfish ambition is one word. Seems to stem from things like day laborer and working for hire, which is kind of interesting. But it's this idea of rivalry and me first, that I'm bigger and better than you. And so that's going to cause a party spirit. That's going to cause strife. I'm first. I'm going to divide up into factions and split communities. It's my way. And of course, at the end of the verse, boasting and pride and self-exaltation. But with rivalry, we think of those two R's that are present here, resentment and rivalry. Who are you in rivalry with? Again, name them. Maybe make a list. Is, is it maybe a person in your life? Is it maybe a group of people? And when those people come up on Facebook, there's something that just clicks in you. When you're driving down the street, look around. There's something that just, um, there's, there's, there's no compassion, there's no forbearance. It's an automatic rivalry spirit. Sometimes this is hard to see. We think our intentions are always good. Maybe, maybe ask somebody. Hey, are there people that I talk about? Are there groups of people that I talk about? Is there a person that I talk about? Um, that something wrong with my heart here. There's an attitude problem. So think about that. Ask God to help you with that. The consequences of, of this is verse 16. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder in every vile practice. So the culture of demonic wisdom, the way of life, the attitude of demonic wisdom is selfish ambition, is bitter is bitter jealousy, rivalry, resentment. That's the culture, that's what it looks like. And the consequences are 16, disorder in every vile practice. So that way of life produces chaos. Chaos in a society, chaos in relationships, chaos inside, anxiety, insurrection, revolution, disorder, all those kinds of things. That's the end. That's where it's going to go. And just as a sidebar, again, demonic wisdom, demon possession causes all kinds of tumult. All kinds of disorder, all kinds of chaos in mind and body. So the consequence of that kind of wisdom, of that kind of culture in a life, in a people, in a society, whatever, will result in destruction and chaos and rebellion against God. So in trying to summarize this, I was trying to take the opposite of what we're going to get to in a, in a minute and try to say, okay, so what is, what is kind of characteristics? How do, we, how do we summarize this? I 
Here are some characteristics of the wisdom from below, demonic wisdom. Self is the ultimate authority. God is denied or at least ignored. It is morally defective. It is unchaste. It is corrupt. It is adversarial. It is hypercritical. It produces anxiety. It leads to chaos. It is demanding. It is abrasive. It talks first. It listens later. Emotions rule. Reason gets sidelined. It's hard-hearted. It's aloof. It's uppity. Mechanical. Distant. Disconnected. In relationships. And toward human brokenness. It's prejudiced. It's racist. It's classist. It's biased. It's always riding the party line even if confronted with truth and error. It's tribalistic. It's showy. It's performance-oriented. It's hypocritical. Those are the kinds of characteristics that make up this earthy, unspiritual, demonic wisdom. And here are some beliefs of this kind's of wisdom and counsel that cannot be of God. This was done by one pastor who was summarizing the work of a Christian counselor. God's name, his specific identity is not clarified. Demonic wisdom. Our accountability to God is not brought up. Our sinfulness against God is not taken into account. Suffering is not perceived as meaningful and possibly acceptable under God. Jesus the Savior is ignored as inconsistent with our own myths of self-sufficiency. God's real forgiveness of sins is overlooked. The Lord is our refuge and strength when life is horrible goes neglected. Real biological and personal factors are absolutized rather than located within the larger reality of God's purposes. The temptations embedded in hardship, for example, despair and escapism, are not faced realistically. The temptations embedded in prosperity, for example, in gratitude and entitlement, are not faced realistically. The inevitability of human worship, sacred or idolatrous, isn't even a category. The authority of God's will when it goes against our own wishes is not revered. The privilege of missional living for God's glory rather than self-glory never comes up. Our weakness, impasse, and inability to change by our own strength are not acknowledged. And he just says, whichever wisdom we trust and open up to makes an incalculable difference. That's for sure. So then, the wisdom from above, divine wisdom. Verses 17 through 18. The cause, the culture, and the consequence. So the cause, it's from above. This is the divine wisdom. This is the God-centered wisdom. It comes from above. It comes from where the Father is, where the good and generous and gracious Father is who is going to give it. And the culture of this, wisdom from above, the cause, and then the culture, is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. So the way of life, the attitudes that characterize this kind of person is first pure. And that word has this idea of evoking awe. So God is involved. It's that kind of purity. It's a God-centered purity. It's morally pure based on what God has said. 
There's a God-likeness to it. It's then peaceable. So it's not, it's not anxious. There isn't all kinds of turmoil. It is, it is whole. It is peace-loving. It's gentle. The idea here, forbearing. So not quick to pounce. Open to reason. So not overly tuned to the emotions in a way that lets go of all reason. It's willing to yield. How some translations have that. Is there a willingness to yield about you? Is there an open-mindedness in the good way about you? It's full of mercy and good fruits. The idea of mercy... Mercy comes to meet the need of human misery. And it always produces good fruit. Is the wisdom that you have, that I have, oriented toward coming to meet the needs of what is miserable or who is miserable or who is experiencing misery? Is that posture characterizing your heart? It is impartial No prejudice. Not breaking things up into classes or not racist. Not ultimately partisan. Not always riding the party line. Breaking up into parties against everybody else. It is sincere. Genuine. Straightforward. This isn't just being completely passive. There's a straightforwardness, a genuineness about it. It's not posturing. There's no pretense. Sincere. And so what's the consequence of that? A harvest. In a very positive way. A harvest of righteousness. So the consequence of demonic divine wisdom, the environment that's caused, chaos, disorder, sinfulness, the consequences of divine wisdom, Harvest, fruit, peace, wholeness. And I think like, who wouldn't? How do we not want that? Who wants a whole life? Who wants a peaceful life? That comes from divine wisdom. Harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. So the harvest, I think it creates an environment practically. Again, not always. Some of this ultimately is going to happen at the judgment when righteousness is really shown, when the harvest is really given, when our works and things like that are weighed. The harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. So if you're sowing one of these things, it's going to create something. If you're sowing this kind of wisdom, peace, wholeness. But notice it also says, make peace. And so peacemaking, again, is not just a passive thing. Because when you make peace, sometimes you're also confronting error. But there's a gentleness about it. There's a tolerance about it. There's a, there's a moderation about it. One commentary. This was kind of an older one, so bear with some of the language. 
James says that those who are wise according to God's will are so kind, meek, and merciful as yet not to cover vices nor favor them. So it's the kind of kindness and meekness that isn't just going to cover up and just not look at it, but it's also not just going to be like favoring, oh, it's okay, it's all good, it's going to make peace. But on the contrary, in such a way as to strive to correct them, and yet in a peaceable manner, that is in moderation so that union is preserved. And thus he testifies that what he had hitherto, don't you love that word, said tends in no degree to do away with calm reproofs. This sentence is great. But those who wish to be physicians to heal vices ought not to be executioners. So this kind of peacemaking isn't out just to execute everybody and throw them down, but there's a gentleness about it. There's a desire for healing, for a physician. Even thinking about like the way an elder is supposed to operate in the pastoral epistles, in, in, in Timothy and Titus. They're supposed to be gentle. They're just not out just like to just always rebuke error, cast everybody down, I'm right, everybody else is wrong, blah, blah, blah. But it says, hey, when, when you get somebody who has something wrong, you are to gently rebuke them. The characteristic of the elder is to be gentle. That's how Jesus was. That's the way he operates toward our lack of wisdom. There's a gentleness about his rebuke and his, his way of making wholeness and peace. So, how do we live like this? Because when I look at that, I seriously, I go, man, I'm in so much trouble. I mean, so honestly, what what does James have to say to us to help us? Because I start feeling like really, really inadequate. Like really like I seriously need divine help. Well, James has news for us. James 1.5, ask for it. You want this wisdom, you ask for it. You pray. You say, God, I am helpless. I really need your wisdom in this situation, in the way my heart is about this, and all these lists that I made about rivalries and resentment or whatever else. So there it is, God. Help me. Give me wisdom. And he says that he is the generous God who will give wisdom. The helpless go to the helper. The stingy goes to the generous God. So ask for it. The next one, get to know the Father. And that's chapter 1, again, 16 to 17. Get to know this generous, good Father of lights who wants to give good and perfect gifts to his kids. Before that, he says, do not be deceived. Because sometimes we don't view God that way. Yeah, God's not really kind he's not really forbearing he's the god who's just out to pounce like well no no that's actually not the way that god works that's that's not operating according to divine wisdom he's a generous father looking to give good gifts so get to know the father so we basically have prayer and meditation what did jesus do you have like the book of john where he's just talking about the father all the time he's always in relationship with the father does the ministry or before he does ministry goes and he gets time with the father He knows his father. He speaks what the father speaks. He does what the father does. You say, well, Jesus was God. Yep, yeah, he was. But that's also our model. He is the son. We are sons. Spend time with the father. Meditate on the father. Know what his attributes are. Correct the false ones that you have in your head with the Bible. So say, God, we need wisdom. Because we are self-centered people. 
We are tribalistic people. We have hearts that get pretty ugly. And we need your help. You are the good and generous God who by His Gospel, which is the ultimate wisdom, contrary to the foolishness of the world, saved us. The good news, the Word of God, the wisdom of God saved us by coming into a place that was all up for revolution and looking for a Messiah to come and just take it all back with the sword, and he dies. And so we are saved by the meekness of Jesus. He kills death and he rises again to show that he is the King of kings, the Lord of lords, the ruler of the nations. He triumphs and he rules by dying, that dichotomy. And that's the good news. And that's what we need to believe as our help. That is the way to divine wisdom. To actually believe that about us. That that's going to change us. Not just save us, but change everything when we live and believe according to that. That Jesus came to substitute himself for fools. People that aren't operating according to God's wisdom. But he actually came, 1 Corinthians says, as our redemption, as our wisdom. And that when we trust him, that is ours. And so we come to communion. I'll have you come up in just a second. But I was struck by this in 1 Corinthians 11. When Paul is writing to tell them about communion, he starts addressing factions in the church. Like, you know, you're fighting over communion or this person's kind of going in front of you and this other person isn't. There's party spirit going on, selfish ambition going on. Well, guess what communion is? It's the answer to that. It's the self-giving of God for us, that we bring nothing to the table. We receive with meekness, with humility, God's grace. And so that's what we are going to come and do. So worship team.